and welcome back to Reflect Forward. I am your host, Carrie Siggins, and I'm so glad you're here today. I'm so pleased to bring my guest to you, Gustavo Rossetti. Gustavo is the CEO and founder of Fearless Culture, which is a consulting company that helps leaders design cultures that people love, that people are inspired to do their very best work. Gustavo has been helping leaders of Fortune 500, startups, nonprofits, and everything in between on every continent across the world, except for, I think, Antarctica, create cultures that people love. During this episode, he's going to share what a fearless culture is and how to go about building it. Gustavo is a prolific writer. He's written four books. His most current one is called Remote Not Distance, and it's all about how to build a culture in this era of hybrid working that we are in. He also writes for the New York Times, Psychology Today, Forbes, and many more. So hang tight. You're going to really love this interview, and I'll be right back with Gustavo. All right. Welcome back, everyone. I am so glad to have Gustavo Rossetti with me today. Gustavo, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Um, thank you, Gary, for hosting me. Very excited to be here. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. So you are all about designing fearless cultures. Uh, I love that. So can you tell us what a fearless culture is? Yes, absolutely. I think I'm going to start with what it's not, because that's the, what we experience most often than not, which is many uh, companies, many workplace cultures, they're driven by fear. They're driven by the fear of their directors or manager, their bosses, they are driven by fear of screwing up, making mistakes, uh, stepping on someone else's toes. And basically, when you build a culture of fear, people are afraid of speaking up. They're afraid of bringing their full self to work. They don't share their best ideas. They keep them to themselves because they want to be judged or criticized by others. So when we talk about fearless, it's not getting rid of fear because fear is a human emotion. We need it actually without that signal that warns us that something's about to happen, we would get killed, you know, and a car could run us over or we'd have issues. Fearless is about understanding, okay, these are the fears that we have and being able to address them. Being, I mean, okay, I'm afraid of what my manager is going to say, but still I'm going to speak up. I'm afraid that maybe my idea might be criticized or ignored by my colleagues, but I'm still going to speak up. So it's about that addressing your fears and being able to act upon that. I love it. I love it. That's what we're trying to create here at Stone Age. Um, so how did how did all this happen? Give us the backstory. Is there a pivotal incident in your career, time in your life when you figured, when you were, oh, ha, this is it? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I do have a lot of those aha moments, but I think that in these particular cases, things are brewing. No, and, and and at some point when you see the aha, it's not that it just magically happened, but basically is when it was the right time for you to make a change. And in my case, my career, I worked for over 20 years in marketing and innovation, and I was helping organizations come up with better products, better ideas, better solutions. And it, the biggest hurdle wasn't that we weren't able to provide those ideas, but in most cases, those ideas never saw the light of day. And why is that? Because there was a lot of bureaucracy, there were a lot of fear, there were a lot of doubt. People loved them, but then they started to over-engineer, over-analyze, and then everything got killed, or at least never saw the light of the day as it was originally conceived. 
So I realized, and, and it wasn't just a wow and how moment, but I also my clients, even though they were hiring me and my teams to work on, let's say, come up with a new problem, a new solution to their problems, they also started asking questions. Hey, I have this issue with my team. My team are not aligned or they are resisting change or my manager doesn't approve ideas that go beyond the usual. So I realized there was a huge need for them to, for someone, for some organization to help them like build that culture. And so... So then you started your own company. Like, let's talk about how you know how how that took you to where you are today. Yes, it, to be honest, it was a little bit of a transition. It, it, I was uh, lucky to be selected to join a program uh, in in Stanford in the D school. It, that it was about leading change, and I learned a lot there. And that was basically the, the last push I needed, the last nudge to say, "Hey, this is where I want to go." And I was able to help a couple of companies, including, for example, Bank of America or Google, to help design the culture of certain teams, right? Not the overall culture. And I say, well, this is what I want to do. So I started working here in Chicago with some startups because it was easy to start working with them. I started putting together some workshops on parallel paths. And at some point, I, I resigned to my previous job uh, and then created my own company. And here I am, <laughs> five years after. Yeah, that's <laughs> almost six. That's great. That's great. And so, I mean, how about like you overcoming your own fear? Were you worried about leaving corporate America and getting out there and starting this consulting firm? How did you, you know, get past maybe some of that self doubt that you had, or were you like, nope, this is it. I know I can do this. That's a good point. I didn't have self-doubt. I have the, well, what happens if it, if, if it goes wrong? Do I have to go back? Do I, no, I'm going to go broke. What's the worst thing that can happen? And and I think that, no, it, it felt completely natural. It wasn't the first time that I was taking a leap. So I'm used to that. To be honest, things were a little bit slower than I expected. Because, I mean, I was an executive vice president trying to basically build a business that gives you the same kind of comfort, income, and so on and so forth. It takes time. But the thing that I never regret first, once you make a decision, like uh, it's because it was the right time for you, you know? <laughs> and the second part is that I always invested or focused on the long term. So I made a lot of conscious decisions about the clients that I want to work with. And the clients that definitely I don't want to work with. Mm -hmm. uh, the same way with the type of projects and energy I want to bring to the to the engagement and the ones that I don't. And now I'm seeing in the past two years and so I started seeing reaping all those benefits. You know, all the decisions that I made, I'm getting the clients I want, I'm getting the projects I want, and, and it's, I'm getting more than I ever dream of. Wow, that's so great. Congratulations. It's so yeah. nice when you bet on yourself, right? I always tell people that like. The best bet you'll ever make is on yourself, even if it's scary at first, even if it goes slower than what you're hoping for, or even if the outcome looks different than what you maybe thought it would, would when you first started. But that's awesome that you have um, have gotten to where you are. Uh, so good, good for you. So did did how did going through COVID, like how do you think that this changed the way people look at building cultures? That's a great point. I, I always say that the pandemic accelerated both accelerated on one hand, but also amplified the good and the bad within every company. What I mean by the good, I mean, if things were, people were collaborating, if people trusted each other, well, when you were forced to work in a 
chaotic environment, not only working remote, but also in the midst of a pandemic where people didn't have the right uh, technology or the right setting in their home offices, because many people don't have an office at home, they just have a coach where they need to work from. Uh, and I think that was great. But on the other hand, there were many companies that people didn't trust each other. Leaders in many companies don't trust their people, and this became even more and more visible. So uh, that was one of the key findings. The second is that many companies and many leaders, because actually companies are uh, abstract, the people that run the businesses, uh, used to think that culture was about those impromptu conversations, was, oh, people are in the same space, so magic is going to happen. And now they realize, well, it wasn't happening before. And so what we're missing is not that, oh, we're losing culture. Actually, we are realizing that probably we never had a strong culture. And now it's becoming more visible because of working remotely. Yeah. So how, right, I'm in that right now. And, and not just, not I mean, we are because we've got locations all over, but now we, being employee-owned, we're letting people make the decision on on what a hybrid workplace would look like for them. Um, so I'm curious, like, what advice do you have for leaders who are trying to figure out how do I keep a close-knit, a fearless culture with my team when, you know, half my people don't come into the office anymore? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I always say that proximity doesn't guarantee Mm-mm. a belonging or that closeness, as you say. And, uh, and, and now you need to and now, no, we always need to be intentional. Now it's even more uh, critical. I think that it's about creating time to build the culture. So rather than having that, the expecting it uh, to grow or build or happen on its own. It, they're from very small uh, tricks. Like, for example, if you're having a meeting once a week with your team, well, invest at least the first five to 10 minutes into building those relationships. Create, there's an activity that we do that's uh, funny but very profound in terms of the impact that's called the washing instructions. So we always assume that we have to treat people the way we want it to be treated, but that's wrong because each person is different. So washing instruction is let people explain, you know, write their own label, their own washing instruction, how they want to be treated. When are they at their best? When they do their best work? How they want to communicate? Some people like to, hey, default to email. Some people default to Slack. Some people say, hey, if you need to touch something that's sensitive or urgent, please give me a call. Some people are early risers. Some, like myself, are night owls. So if you get to understand the different nuances of how people work and how they expect others to treat them, how they expect others to communicate and collaborate, that helps both a lot. If... In a hybrid setting, we also need to be very mindful about participation. So it always default to online. So want to make sure that we don't uh, prioritize the people that are in the room versus the other. We, we need to have someone to facilitate conversations. So in the past meetings, they didn't have a facilitator. And that's why they weren't that effective. In a hybrid setting, it becomes even more important. And lastly, one of the key things is about understanding that a hybrid environment is flexibility with discipline. So you need to, to your point, you're giving your team members space for them to select where they want to work, but most importantly, what's their schedule, no? give them flexibility in every aspect. But that also requires discipline. We need to be more intentional. So if a care is going to work from eight to five and Gustavo from 10 to seven, well, at some point, we need to agree, when are we going to have that bandwidth, that space in which we're all available, in which we can interact? 
what's our response uh, 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 expectations when it comes? If I send you an email, should you respond immediately, or it's okay if you take within twenty-four or thirty-six hours to to? There are a lot of rules and stuff that we need to put in place to make sure that flexibility is not a hindrance, but actually an amplifier of good uh, behavior. Yeah. I love all of those things. And, and, you know, sometimes it feels overwhelming as a leader, right? It's like, okay, <laughs> I have to do all of these things. And people ask me that all the time. We're, we're an employee-owned company. We have um, a very tight-knit culture here. It certainly changed after COVID or, you know, it changed throughout COVID and it's different now than, than what it was. And, you know, I always tell people, wait, because it feels hard to scale culture development. And I believe that it is, right? Because it comes down to, mm-hmm. you know, the individual relationships that managers have with their employees. Like that is the, in my opinion, like where culture is either made or where it's broken. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we spend a lot of time here working with our teams, with our, our managers um, at all levels to be able to, you know, create the culture that we want, right? How do we make it safe for people to speak up? How do we solicit people's ideas? How do we how do we cultivate the ownership thinking that we want here at being an employee-owned company? What what is your advice on, you know, how to how to scale culture building? The most important piece for scaling anything is to decentralize the process. So if, if I think that it's important to understand who owns culture. And traditionally, we tend to think that the most senior leader of the company owns the culture. I think that they own the responsibility of having a healthy, strong, successful culture. But when it comes to building it, it depends on everyone. So we need to decentralize. So there's a, 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 a who's going to be within different teams. I mean, if it comes to product or engineering or customer service or marketing, well, you need to find advocates within each of those teams that are going to help you scale the culture so it doesn't just it, it depends on one single person. Rituals are a very powerful tool for teams to basically scale culture. Now, if you have either company or team rituals that people adopt and they become part of who you are, that's also important. A creating transparency, like having town hall meetings in which not only the leader talks, but actually people are encouraged to uh, share questions, have other people presenting, people from different places, so you can get the full culture be expressed in a, a, a company setting, not just one or two voices having that conversation. That's also important because then people feel, well, I could be the next. Maybe next time they're going to invite me so people feel more open to participate as well. Yeah, I love that. Decentralizing. It's exactly the way that I look at it, but I I mean, I never have like thought about it in that terms. But, you know, I tell my employees this and I, I think some people it really resonates with and others, I think that they expect like culture is you know, I, that's me, which, you know, of course it, it is, but yeah. <laughs> I tell everybody like you make up the culture, right? It is a collection of every single one of us and you get to choose every day. Are you going to add to the culture or are you going to detract from the culture? And we do that with how we show up and how we own our actions and how we lean into difficult situations. And, you know, to me, it's really empowering. Um, but for others, it might feel like, wow, you know, how is that my responsibility? So what, what is your view on it being also part of the individual contributor and how they show up? And of course, management, you know, we need to be creating that environment to flourish. But there's the other side of it, too, right? How employees choose to engage in the culture. So what are your thoughts on that? 
Sure. The first thing, I mean, if we want to go to the opposite of a fearless culture to the extreme, a toxic culture. Now people talk a lot about toxic. Sometimes there are companies that are not great, but people use the word toxic like very easily. But let's say we're talking about an extremely toxic culture. Those companies don't get there overnight. It's a progression. Yes. And usually people blame it on one leader because it's easy. But once again, if people don't do anything, if people don't speak up, if people don't push back, then they are complicit of that culture. And at some point, because we just observe behaviors that are not okay and do nothing, then we're also part of forming that toxic culture. So fast forward, how can we create a good culture in which people are part of the process? The designing the culture we want is a co-creative process. However, you as the leader, you have the final word in defining what culture you want for the company. What are our principles, our purpose, our values, the behaviors that we expect. To your point, Carrie, the second step, it's our leaders modeling. That's what we call demonstrate. So how you and other leaders are going to show up and model the right culture. But then there's an element, which is demand, what leaders demand from people. So people also need to do their work. There are some behaviors that are okay that we are going to reward and the behaviors are going to punish because they are not part of who we want to be. And that's where people need to contribute to make sure that not only keep their leaders accountable, but also make sure that if leaders set clear expectations on what's okay and what's not okay, that people leave that up to those expectations as well. And I think it comes down to self-accountability too, right? So we've got to hold our leaders accountable, but we also have to hold ourselves accountable to that. That's right. Whether it's pushing back or speaking up or, you know, or saying, I'm going to show up with a good, a good uh, attitude today, positivity. But, and so we, at Stone Age here, one of our core values is self-leadership. And I really try to teach people like what self-leadership means is, is holding people accountable and holding yourself accountable as part of this ecosystem that we're creating that, that has our employees, it has our leadership, it has our, our customers, our suppliers, our partners. It's this whole ecosystem that really is impacted by culture and by accountability to that culture. And so I, I really love that word that you, you know, that you specifically saying that, because I think it's such a foundation in all of this. How do you think leaders should hold themselves accountable to fixing a culture that might be toxic or maybe not toxic, but that isn't really working for people? Yeah. I think that first of all, <laughs> I love the self-leadership idea as a value. I think that's really, really important. I hope that many more companies adopt it because that's what we promote. Uh, and it's important that self-leadership is not just something that employees, for lack of a better term, should adopt. But actually it starts with leaders. It, I think that we live in a culture in which we've been taught that leaders are heroes. We revere leaders, we adore them, we, and we only see them as people who are going to save the day and solve all the problems. So that sometimes get leaders off the hook because they think, ah, I'm the leader, I earned this position, so now, no, I'm perfect, it's on you. Take, for example, feedback. When it comes to feedback, leaders think that they're the ones who should be giving feedback to their team members because they own, there's a lot of research that talks about what it's called the source of truth. So leaders think that, oh, I know how to do my job, that's why I'm the leader. I'm going to tell the other people how to become better because they don't know. They don't, they don't. And that's it. Once again, it's getting leaders off the hook because instead of thinking of how can I become better as a leader, 
how can I hold myself accountable? They're always looking into how to improve and fix others. And that's a key issue. So self-awareness is the first kind of a key step that leaders need to tackle. It, there's research by Tasha Urich that shows that 95% of leaders think that they are self-aware, but only under 5% of them actually are, which gives you a huge gap. That means that you're missing your blind spots, that miss, that uh, shows that you don't know, you're making decisions with lack of information and clarity. So how do you fix that? The first thing is asking for feedback. The company cultures that, like Patagonia, that managers are not... I wouldn't say they're forbidden, but actually rather than being uh, giving feedback, managers are always asking their colleagues, their direct reports for feedback for themselves. So how can I become better? So when you adopt that idea, you become a, a more accountable because you want to improve. And second, also, you mentioned the word call me out. No, I always uh, work with clients like, what are the two things that you're trying to improve as a leader? and give explicit permission to your team members to call you out every time you go back. You know, for example, leaders who interrupt. Well, every time I interrupt, call me out. So I think that's critical. Oh my gosh, you are so speaking my love language. <laughs> I oh, I'm a huge believer in feedback. I mean, I teach my employees the radical candor model. Um, and mm -hmm. we really work hard at how to also receive feedback. And um, so I remember the toughest piece of feedback I ever got was from one of my executives and we were, it wasn't working out and we were going to have to figure out him exiting the company. And, uh, and he told me something, he said, you think that you are a disruptive leader, but really you're just erratic and I'm not the problem you are. And oh my gosh, it stung so bad. Right? I mean, it was a very emotional conversation and he said it um, in an emotional outburst, but um, and even though it stung, I had to go home and I really thought like, okay, how do I take the good from this feedback? And, you know, where, where is he coming from with this? Because, right, erratic is certainly a trigger word. And I realized that, you know, I move fast and I definitely am a visionary leader. But when you're moving so fast and you're 10 steps ahead of every, where everybody else is because, you should be, right? You should be thinking about the future. If you don't tie that back to the work that everybody's doing every day and help them understand where this is going, um, it, they can feel maybe chaotic or erratic. And so I really appreciated that piece of feedback that he gave me. And I thanked him for it the next day. Uh, and he was like, you know, I, I said it out of anger. I'm really sorry. I don't think you are. And I was like, no, it's okay. Like I want, I really want to, I want to hear that and I can see where you're coming from. And so I made the decision from that day forward that I would never be called that again. And I was going to be cool, <laughs> calm and collected. And I told my team that, like I shared this whole thing with it because it was, it was a tough situation. It was several, several years ago now, um, but cool, calm and collected. And I really held myself accountable to that. And I told, would tell people like, if you start to see me get like amped up, whether it's about an idea or, you know, getting annoyed about something, tell me, call me out because I really want to be cool, calm and collected. And that piece of feedback was probably the most profoundly effective feedback I've ever given because I got a very clear vision and I have a much better process for walking all of our employee owners through, um, which I'm really proud of because people are so bought into where we're going. But I also just don't get so worked up about things and my life is way better. 
So it's such a great example of what you just <laughs> said of putting it into practice and how powerful it can be when leaders stop and say, you know, maybe that piece of feedback is right, even though it stings. Um, how can I use it to make myself better? You can literally change your whole leadership approach in a really positive way if you're willing to, to hear it and take action. Absolutely. And I think that's important not only to listen to feedback, but also if in your case, you mentioned that you were going to make certain changes, get back to the team and say, hey, I heard you, not only this person, but also you can talk to the rest of the team and say, and this is what I'm going to do. Because that promotes, yeah. going back to, you talk about modeling the right behavior, that promotes a culture of people say, hey, if my leader reflects and wants to improve, then it's okay that we do the same. Exactly. When leaders are in this perfect position, then people say, well, if my leader doesn't care about improvement, why should I? Yep. Totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. Well, I'm really glad we had this conversation. Um, uh, it just so fits into exactly my belief system. And it's really cool that you're doing this work. Now, I want to talk about a different thing that, that I know that you've spent some time talking about. And that's like fairness in the workplace, right? Especially with hybrid uh, workforces now where, you know, some people's jobs require them to be on site. Some people are jobs are suited for them to be at home. So it kind of creates this have versus have not type feeling within the organization. How do leaders address this in this whole fearless culture framework that you've set? How do you deal with the haves versus the have nots? How do you deal with fairness? I would say that rather than react like this is new, let's zoom out. And this was already happening. In any company that have, let's say, manufacturing capabilities, the people that work on the plants have to work maybe six days a week, while people that are blue-collar, white-collar jobs work five hours, and they have an eight to five, and the plants sometimes have to work at 6 a.m. So there's always been different. If you work on a call center, your expectations of uh, working hours and, and stuff are probably you have to work during uh, holidays where other people don't. So this kind of uh, inequality in the workplace happen all the time. So it's not new. My question would be, how did you manage that in the past? When you have people that work in the plant double shifts or they have to work during the weekends because you have to continue manufacturing or what happened when customer service had to work during holidays? So I think that's the criteria. It's not new. Uh, first, I would say don't try to uh, compensate because there are different realities. No? And I think... What's important is first that people can make their choices. So if I have to work 100% from the office because my role determines that, well, there are some people that are okay with that. It's important to hire the right person for the right job. Second, there's also something about challenging the, the, the thinking. I remember when Citibank defined uh, one year or so ago, we're going to have three roles. People are going to be fully remote. People are going to, roles, they're going to be fully in the office and roles are going to be hybrid. They made that decision without involving people. Yeah. They didn't ask people, can you do that job differently? So I think that's the opportunity, which is inviting people to rethink their jobs. And maybe people can come with creative technical solutions to solve for that. Yep. Agreed. I try to give my team a framework for decision-making Right. Because the, what is fair anyway? Right. But I think what people want uh, is to feel like my individual situation was considered. Right. Instead of some policy that I have to follow that doesn't take into to account what's going on in my life. And so we've given our team a framework of decision making around, you know, who can work hybrid, who can who has to be on site, um, you know, who can work fully remotely. Mm -hmm. 
And it takes into consideration the unique situation of that person. And of course, it still has to all fit together with the team. And the bigger you get, the more complex that it gets, but uh, and, and difficult to to make sure that it's all going to work together. But I will tell you, my employees so appreciate it, especially those who whose roles require them to be on site full time. Right. When it was like, hey, look, how what does flexibility mean to you? For some people, it was, can I work four days a week? Some people it was like, hey, I would like the ability to come in early so I can leave in time to pick up my children from school. Some people said, hey, could I set it up so I could work you know, one day a week from home or two days a month from home? And so instead of trying to like force fit, because what we were going to try to do is figure out if we could do uh, sure. four day work weeks for everybody. But we asked instead. And a lot of people were like, no, that's not what I want. You know, this is what would be better for me. And so we tried to give that much flex more flexibility. And I think my team feels like, you know, even though my job is required to be on site, at least I feel like my situation is taken into consideration and we're trying to make accommodations so that people feel like they have flexibility, um, even if it's not the same as what a hybrid or fully remote worker might have. And so that's what where I try to encourage people is to think about giving your team that that framework for decision-making rather than hard and set policies, because then you can hear people out and you can say, this is what's best for this particular situation. So that's one of the things that we're doing here to try to address that whole fairness issue and really involve all of our employees in the whole process. So um, it's really validating. That's what you say. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I like the, like for me, it's more mo from fairness to moving towards understanding, no? Yeah. Because when we try to provide, oh, let's make the experience more fair. Once again, it's based on our assumptions. Yeah. And me, when I talk to people, some people say, you know what? I'm cool working five days a week from the office because that's what I always did. And some people say, you know what? Can I work longer shifts and four days instead of five? Or can I have more breaks? Or can I have breaks? So it, 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 I think the biggest gain is stop thinking into one size fits all solutions when it comes to the workplace and be open to different models within the organization. I love it. I love it. Good. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what you've got going on. So I love that you are a prolific writer. Um, I'm a writer myself, so I can totally appreciate your passion. Your latest book is called Remote Not Distant. So can you talk a little bit about what the book is about and why you wrote it? Yeah, absolutely. I wrote it by demand, kind of, because people were saying, hey, we need, we need something. I mean, I've been spending a lot of time early writing stuff, but also facilitating culture design projects and coaching, consulting projects with different companies and teams, helping them build their hybrid or remote first kind of culture. And at some point people say, well, we need, like, can you put something more specific that we can use as a roadmap, no? And that's precisely what I, I try to accomplish with the book. It's not about saying, hey, this is the five steps towards success. So this is what you need to do because each company is different. Each mm -hmm. country is different. Each organization is unique. Rather than give people a, a roadmap and, a, and a, a, a toolkit that they can use, because normally I, I included lots of insights from my own research, interviewing people across the world from different types of organizations, the people that were struggling with this new reality and the people that actually nailed it and were doing a great job. But also, I include a lot of tools that people can use to start reflecting on their own culture, you know, assessing where they are, what are the pain points, and then building. You know, we talk about belonging, we talk about psychological safety, feedback, well, lots of tools 
that people can actually use to be, build a better culture, but most important to experiment. Now that's the, the key uh, message and the key invitation actually that I made with the book is no one know what, what the future is going to look like, but the same way you're inviting your team and you're giving them options and you're having conversations and pivoting, well, that's why I'm trying to encourage with my book as well. Yeah, I love it. All right, so I have two final questions before we um, before we wrap up. Um, so the first one is, the name of this podcast is Reflect Forward. What does Reflect Forward mean to you? The, the first thing that comes to mind when we talk about feedback and, and Marshall Goldsmith, the coach, talks about feed forward, right? Many times when we reflect, it, I mean, I reflect on the past, but we get stuck into, I should have done this, I should have done that. You asked me about a, a, my path, my new career. And for me, I always rather than look back and say, well, what should I have done differently? It's more like a, what have I learned that I can apply to to the next? So I think the key reflection is we don't control our destiny and we can get stuck into trying to reconcile our expectations with reality or we can take reality and say, this is what I got. What can I do with it? Now, so I was reflecting to when the pandemic came, I had to reinvent my business. So it was a good, like a, I say, you know what? Millions of people are suffering. So I reflect into, well, rather than complain about, oh, poor me, it's okay. What can I do about it? My reflection is always about that. Like what's going on and what can I do with what I have? Not uh, cry or complain about what I don't have. Yeah, I love it. Great answer. Thank you. All right. And finally, if you had one piece of advice for leaders looking to be the very best at what they do, what is that advice? I would say, look at the things that irritate you the most, what frustrates you the most about your people. And that's because there's something in there that you need to fix. <laughs> so something that you're not accepting in yourself. So that's a huge signal of an area for you to improve. I love that. I love that. I know every time I get annoyed by something, I was like, okay, what is this telling me about myself? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's fantastic. All right, Gustavo, where can people find you? Well, you know, on LinkedIn, I'm very active. And actually, I'm the only Gustavo Rosetti with two Zs and two Ts. So that's easy. Uh, also, they can visit our company website, which is a fearlessculture.design. It's not .com, but .design, because that's why we, we design cultures. And you can subscribe. We have a free newsletter weekly newsletter. I share not only the tools and articles that we write, but also a lot of articles and stuff from other people. And there's a lot of content. We have over 600 articles and many tools that you can use to build a fearless culture. Wonderful. I'll include all those in the show notes. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. This was a fun, fun conversation uh, with a, another like-minded, kindred soul. Um, so thank you for, for sharing your expertise and your time today. Thank you, Kerry, for the invitation. I love your experiences and all the stuff that you do with your team and your self-reflection. That's a great way to inspire people. And I hope the audience enjoy your insights and our conversation. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Hang on, hang tight and I'll be right back. All right, everyone. I hope that you gained all kinds of knowledge and wisdom uh, from that lovely conversation that I had with Gustavo. Be sure to check out his book. I will tell you what I think of it on maybe an advice from a CEO episode once I finish it after Thanksgiving. All right. With that, I will leave you to your week. I hope you have a wonderful one. 
And if you like this podcast, please, please, please go to iTunes and subscribe to it, write a review, uh, share it with a friend. I always appreciate it. It helps with the algorithms and it just continues to get the word out there. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye. 